So on the show today, Giampiero Petriglieri, Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD and one of the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world. And with us is also my co-host, Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So today we'll talk about humanizing leadership. So Giampiero, a warm welcome to the show. And it's so, so great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And Giampiero, I, I really look forward to our discussion because... Starting Summa, not only did uh, I want us to really show the world that you could create strong returns uh, by doing impact uh, investments and sustainable investments, but I also wanted to create a great place to work where you know you work with people that you love, you have shared values, you have a shared purpose, and you can bring your whole self to work, practicing radical uh, honesty, uh, self-leadership. So we had a lot of really good ideas of how to create a fantastic place to work. And throughout the years, uh, we've come quite far, but uh, it's also been a struggle. So I realized that some of the theories out there and some of the idealistic ideas of uh, how people can work together doesn't always work in practice, or at least it's hard work. So I really look forward to discussing some of this with you and tapping into your knowledge on this. Definitely, I would agree. Let me kick off with um, one, I think, important question to understand also who you are and where you are coming from. And that is your passion. You know, what, what is your passion? That thing that is so important that uh, you're also willing to suffer for it if needed or sacrifice something important for it. I tend to think that thing get very interesting and a lot more sustainable when passion turns into care. It's like, you know, in all um, long term relationships, whether it be romantic ones or friendships or family ones, the healthiest ones are not really just sustained by passion, but they're sustained by care. And I really care a lot about, you know, what um, Rainer was just talking about. How do you bring people and places, how do you bring them to life in a way that is um, not just efficient, but it's also human that is vital that it's elegant that is sustainable so i guess you could say my passion certainly in my work is this idea you mentioned of humanizing leadership on making space for all that is um, messy and contradicting and complicated in um, people and in the systems they inhabit not just in my theories in my writing but also into practice you know helping people that are doing all that hard work, but are struggling the good struggle. I don't think leadership is uh, ever anything else, but some struggles are a little more meaningful and more useful than others. And so that's what I'm interested in. I have a real passion for this, for developing the principles, for refining the practices. And I guess my biggest passion is being with people were doing the work. If I have to choose between the three, I think anyone who's sort of like me focused on building a professional enterprise is always interested in principles, practices, and people. But my biggest passion is the people, honestly. How do we help each other? How do we hold each other up? How do we support and challenge each other as we build the kind of organizations that you and I are interested, not just investing in, but living in? Would you say people before purpose in a way? Always. I think a lot of leadership development and a lot of leadership usually 
work the other way around. I mean, I think any kind of leadership is always, is always balancing the two. Any decent leader loves people and loves a purpose. And I think we tend to think of leadership as, I, th- I believe, as putting purpose into people. You know, and we tend to focus a lot on how, are you sure you have your vision? And then, you know, are you sure you're bringing people with you, by which we mean like, you know, you're, you're dragging people towards that vision. And uh, we tend to focus so much on the purpose, on the idea, on the principle, on that place where we are going. And once we get there, everything is going to be okay. But I tend to think that there are many situations in which it's much better, it's much more functional to actually do it the other way around. For example, when there's a crisis, when there's a moment of loss, where, or where we're building something that's taking shape as we go along. In that case, you know, the purpose might not be clear. It might have just been lost, or it might be yet emerging. It might be just an intuition. And what you need is to make sure that people are held well enough, that they have the space, both the space of mind, but also the physical space, where they can actually think, where are we going? Where they can actually feel some degree of hope, we might be able to get there. And when they can actually move, you know, and I think of leadership that way. I think of leadership as a story that moves, a story that moves you, a story that moves others, a story that moves from idea to reality. And the story needs to move in all three ways. If it doesn't move you, you lose motivation. It doesn't move others, you lose followers. Doesn't move into reality, you lose results. Uh, But I do think it begins with people coming together to either make a world that isn't yet there or to escape a world that is there but is not as hospital as it could be for them. And then the purpose is a consequence. The purpose is a consequence of their discomfort, of their desire. And honestly, most likely of both. I've seen very, very few. And I, I loved what you say, Rainer, that, you know, theory is one thing and practice is another. I absolutely agree. And I always tell people, you know, it's one thing to live in theory and one thing to live in a body. And if you have to choose living a body, it's a lot more interesting that way. But it's a lot more complicated because theories tend to be linear, abstract, uh, almost a little bit absolutist. And people, certainly good people, are very rarely linear. They're often embodied, and quite often they are relative. And they live in a moment in time and context. They're of two minds, or they change their minds. And in that respect, I do think most leadership usually comes from a combination of dissatisfaction and desire, discomfort and desire. I'm not quite content yet with where we are, and yet I'm not so desperate that I can't feel we could do something better. If you just have desire, sometimes you're too idealistic. If you just have discomfort, you're too desperate. But when you have the two is when, um, well, I wanted to say is when the magic happens. But really made me think that maybe it's more accurate to say that it's when the struggle begins. Some time ago, we were talking to um, Roberto Briganti, who's a, also a professor, and he was talking about reframing the need also to, you come to a certain point where you've done so much and you could actually, in a way, a little bit lean back and be just happy with it, but you need, you feel the huge urge to kind of reframe yourself and how you use yourself or your organization in, in some way. What is your reflections on that, the need for reframing? I mean, I think obviously, 
again, in theory, usually we have one vision, one set of principles, but in reality, we're constantly adjusting. I mean, if we're relatively sensitive and we live in the world and we are changing and the world is changing, you know, hopefully there's always a moment of reflection and readjustment and correction. And if you think about it, even what from a distance looks like a very linear arc, it's often the result of uh, many, many, many micro adjustments that then lead us to keep our trajectory. But the way I would think about it is more in terms of the pace. I think very often, certainly not as much in the management thinking, but in management practice, I think we don't have as much respect for the need to change pace over time. So I know lots of executives who are also, for example, like I was and I'm passionate about sports and they take a lot of inspiration from endurance athletes and the kind of capacity to sustain focus and uh, suffer through, you know, fatigue and pain and just push through in order to get to their results. And what I always say is, do you realize that those people take rest and recovery very seriously? While in business, we don't really take the importance of rest and recovery as seriously. And in athletics, what happens is, is that the more successful and the more, um, the closer you get to the top, the more support you acquire a mental coach and nutritionist and someone, you know, who manages your athletic coach and then your technical coach and all of that. And the job of all those people is to make sure that you push yourself at the limit of your performance for just the right moment and the right time, but also that you do work that is at a slower pace, that is a little bit more focused on the technique or on their recovery. And we understand that in order to go very, very fast at certain moments, you have to go very, very slow at other moments and very often that you have to do intervals. Almost all athletic training includes you know, doing intervals, slow, fast, slow, fast. And the ability to pace ourselves is as important in the Olympic marathon as it is in the neighborhood 10K. I think when it comes to business, very often you show that you can go fast and someone asks you to go faster next quarter, next quarter, next quarter. And then we lose form. And uh, we also sometimes at the individual level, we burn out. And at the organizational level, we plateau. So I, I don't know if I would think about it as reframing, but I think about it in terms of pace. What are the shifts of pace? Do you understand when is it time to take a step back, hold back, slow down, and when is instead time to push through and accelerate and try to go maybe even a little bit over the edge of your comfort? Because it's, it's even this thing, like, you know, we should get out of our comfort zone, and it, it's a truism, right? Of course you should get out of your comfort zone. Well, you're out of your comfort zone all the time. You just be exhausted and your comfort zone will shrink. I don't care that we get out of our comfort zone. I care that we expand our comfort zone. And in order to do that, we need to get out and in and out and in and out and in. And that's something that requires a lot of personal presence, but it's also something that requires a lot of help. I'm now working on a piece on friendship. And again, we're back to what we were saying earlier. We tend to think so much about do I have the principles to have the vision, to have the capacity. And we tend so to think so little about who's helping me refine my principles, realize my vision, enhance my capacity, who's helping us pace.
And I, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, there's a long-distance runner called Paula Radcliffe. And she's one of the most accomplished marathon runner of all times. And I read once an interview with her coach that really moved me. And he said, um, you know, Paula is such an incredible athlete. And one of the things that makes her an incredible athlete is she has the capacity to push herself through pain in a way that most other human beings won't have. As my job is to make sure she does it as little as possible and only in the moments in where it's absolutely necessary. And, you know, I think with purpose is the same way. It's wonderful to be purpose-driven, but it can also make you be obsessed. And so when you're working with purpose-driven people or purpose-driven organization, you're trying to support them, to help them grow and last. What you're doing is to trying to make sure that the purpose sustains us rather than consume us. What makes a leader in our times and what does it mean to lead well? Because we all talk about leadership and leaders and so on. But actually, if you would like define it, what is leadership and what makes a good leader today? I don't know if what makes a good leader today is any different, honestly, than what's made a good leader any day. It's the ability to articulate, embody and help realize a story for a group of people and at a certain point in time, right? Because you know, I don't think anyone is a leader. You're always someone's leader for a certain task, for a certain purpose, at a certain moment in time. And usually, in most cases, you're a leader for one group, and there might be another group that actually thinks of you as a fanatic. That's most likely if you're a very visionary leader. The most charismatic you are, the most visionary you are, the more likely it is that you're polarizing. Some people think of you as a great leader. Some people think of you as a fanatic. So... That's what for me needs to lead. You need to know what is the story you're trying to bring to life. Two, you can't just tell it. You have to show it. It needs to be your story. You need to embody it. I think these days there's this idea. Leadership is storytelling. Everyone can tell a good story, but great stories are not just told. They are built. You can't give a story to others if you don't embody it yourself. So you need to be able to articulate it. You need to be able to embody it. And then you need to have the skills, the capacity to help realize it, you know, to build something. Otherwise, you know, you're just might as well be an author. But an author is one thing and authority is another. Now, if you ask me what it means to lead well, for me, it's a slightly different thing because, you know, you could articulate, embody and help realize you know, cult, a dictatorship. You could benefit just a group of people at the expense of everyone else. I think what it means for me to lead well is to articulate, embody, and help realize stories that benefit and free up not just you and people like you, but a larger and more heterogeneous group of people. So that's what it means to me to lead well. I think you're right in a lot of the elements of good leadership have always been the same and it has to be focusing on the people that you lead and, as you said, free them up. But I do think the importance of purpose and real purpose and being authentic around the purpose has changed. I see that, you know, during my career and now that creating Summa, with it, we have a strong purpose around investing to solve global challenges. And that purpose, everyone knows and we live it every day. And that's why people are here. And I do think... What we do see a lot of businesses now that are focusing on lifting up what they're doing uh, sustainably. Leaders are talking for it, uh, around it. It's very easy to see when this is not authentic and it's not sort of truly their purpose. 
And people walk much more with their feet now. I mean, uh, the employees and everyone, they care about that it's a real purpose and that you're authentic around it in a very different way than, than I experienced prior to Zuma. I would agree with that. And certainly it's because I think one thing that's, that's changed is, of course, there's a lot more mobility. And once you have mobility, then people don't make just one single choice, but they're always constantly looking at what is the place where I might be able, not just in a selfish way to be myself, but to contribute to something that I feel is worth doing, to use my energy, my intellect and whatnot as part of something that I feel resonates with me. And of course, it has to be authentic. I don't think anyone cares that you have a a very nice, uh, you know, mission statement. I think people want to see that embodied and they want to see that put into practice and realized. Another thing that might have changed is that certainly over the last decades, but perhaps over the last hundred years, work has become a lot more central to people's existential projects and to the social fabric. It's not a job uh, only. It's part of your life and a mission. Yeah, part of your life, right? You know, it's the way I always, you know, one of the things that I genuinely believe is we're all moved by trying to do something meaningful to, you know, I use this example a lot. I don't know if you've ever been to the caves of Lascaux. It's one of the earliest preserved places where there is the prehistoric rock art. And uh, I remember being there and thinking, 17,000 years ago, someone, instead of just hiding and staying warm or trying to hunt, decided they wanted to spend their time just mixing, grinding stones to make color. And then with their fingerprints, they drew these animals and then they left their handprint. And what moved them to do something like that? What moves us to make art? And I tend to think, by the way, of a lot of work as art, we can get back to that. And I think what moved them is this very human impulse to leave something behind, to do something that touches others. And we don't want to touch, you know, instead of touching others through their hand, they wanted to touch others through their work. And I come to use this as one of my catchphrases. We're all trying to leave our fingerprint on the rock before the fingerprint turns to dust so that we can touch others, maybe others that we cannot touch next to us, others that might be far away or in a distant place or in a distant time. And so I think, you know, in many ways, the way we used to do that was by joining, you know, organized religions or by joining military campaigns in the past. And today that place, that tool to leave our fingerprints on the, on the rock for most of us is work. That's the place we go to make something that might touch others who are not just next to us, that are distance in space and time. And I think once you start seeing work that way, not just as a way to make money or to stay safe, but as a way to actually do something that will last. Work is no longer a technical or an instrumental enterprise. It's an existential, it's a humanistic enterprise. And that's what I'm interested in. And yes, I would agree. There's certainly been a move towards that. And there's been more consciousness of that. There's been more consciousness of the fact that, you know, work is something that shouldn't just make me money. It should also something that should give me meaning. And that shouldn't just be reserved for, it was always the case for those who could afford it. But I think one of the good news is 
we now think about that more broadly. How can we make that be possible at scale for everyone? I agree with you on that. So I do think the challenges that we're seeing around us is becoming so big that people both want to be part of the solution and they want to find meaning in things because things seems more meaningless when you have all of these uh, challenges facing you. When you talked about what does it mean to lead well, so I have a coaching question to you because starting Summa and doing impact investing at scale, also delivering superior returns to investor. You know, we were really the first one doing it. And when you go down a road less traveled, I had a clear vision of what the objective was and where, where to get to, but not how to get there, right? And I have an organization which is fantastic and in many ways uh, smarter and, and better than me. And then uh, we go ups and down through the pandemic. There's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, as a leader, I, of course, also have my uncertainties and my vulnerabilities, and I, I do want help. At the same time, the organization wants me as a leader to sort of point the way. Well, I maybe sometimes want they to be part of creating that way because none have gone through that way and made that road before. So it's this whole dilemma of the need to be sort of a confident leader to give certainty and uncertainty, and at the same time struggling with that uncertainty and, and vulnerability. So um, what do I do wrong when I when often the organization needs me to point the way? I don't know that you do anything wrong. I think what you're experiencing is the dilemma of anyone who tries to lead well in practice, which is that you need to balance the courage to act consistently, even when it might be difficult or even when you maybe don't know when it might be easier or convenient to just be quiet and stand still, and the courage to ask pointedly. Because if you only keep constantly acting and you can never ask. You see, I think if you just act without asking, you're a fundamentalist, you don't have ideas, you just believes and you keep hammering those. And if you just ask without ever acting, then you're a philosopher, which is also great. Uh, but as a leader, you need the courage to act, which makes you move forward, and you need the courage to ask that keeps you safe. And for me, the question is, where do you go? Like, you know, how do you make sure that you are doubting yourself, that you're doubting well? Because I think there is doubt that is just, that wastes your time and your energy. Uh, just second guessing, it's confusing people, but there's also doubt that is constructive. And I think the doubt that is constructive is usually about what are the consequences of what are we're trying to do and who pays the price, who benefits, and how sustainable this is and what not. And I guess for me, you know, the question that I'm sure, like most leaders in the real world in practice, people also seduce you to be more certain than you can actually be. And you know, the courage part is actually discerning, okay, what are the things where I really have certainty? And they're usually two or three principles. So like this is, these are the things that don't change, no matter. And what are the things where actually people are just looking for you to rescue them, make it easier for them, where you can't. And you just have to be honest. And to me, usually is you, you need to have relatively few certainties. You know, this is what doesn't change, no matter what. This is not going to change. I'm going to bet the house on it, my energy on it, all of that. And everything else we're figuring out. I think especially, you know, people like me who were in some way always to do some paid, say, no, no, this is how you kind of portray certainly all of that. I think doubting well, 
I mean, it's very important for a leader and it's been built into, if you look at, you know, we have this idea ever since the Greek philosophers, Plato, the philosopher king and Aristotle and Alexander the Great, because without combining certainty and doubt and, be, and without struggling with what do I know and what am I trying to do and what is the value of this and whatnot, it, without the two, I think leadership is never responsible because leadership is a kind of commitment and wisdom is a kind of doubt. And so I think what you need as a leader, if I were coaching you, I would say, who are the people that keep you confident and certain when you tend to second guess yourself and become insecure? And who are the people that help you doubt when you are tempted to become overconfident and uh, sometimes pretend that you know even when you don't? And in my experience, I mean, I don't know you very well, so I would have no way of helping you with that in this kind of context. Certainly, in my experience, many people like you who are, by social standards, very successful and very accomplished and very visible tend to have a lot more people around them that help them be certain than that help them doubt. You know, and uh, the way I put it is, you know, we all have many friends. But what kind of friends are they? Are they friends of your performance? Are they people that reinforce what you know and what you can do? Or are they friends of your learning? And friends of your performance help you close the gap between who you are and who you worry, you know, you might be if things don't go well. They reassure you. They give you the kind of soft love. You're okay, you know. No, just keep doing it. Don't stop. You know, this is good. You know, you're just um, maybe unsure. But friends of learning usually help you close the gap between who you are and who you could be, the bolder version of yourself. And they sometimes make you question. And to me, the question is, do you have a few trusted friends of your learning, people you can go to and say, I don't have a clue and I need help. And very often, certainly I work with a lot of senior executives, it gets harder and harder and harder and people don't do it maliciously. It's because they look up to you and they think you know and have more resources than they do and sometimes honestly you do and you don't want to let them down. And I think this is kind of a leftover of our kind of relatively traditional vertical dare I say, paternalistic view of leadership, that a good leader should make us feel certain and good when sometimes the truth, a good leader, what they can do is to kind of point in a certain direction and then ask us to fill the gaps and work to get there. And the best they can really do is to say, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I'm not asking myself. I'm going to struggle with the same questions you're struggling with and I'm, um, you know, going to try to build the same railway you're trying to build, and we'll get there together. And we just absolutely hate that in theory. We so attach to this idea that there must be someone somewhere who knows better and can make it easier. But, you know, in the face of these challenges you were talking about, the hardest thing to say is maybe there isn't. Maybe the best there can be someone that says, you know, kind of, sort of, that way might be a little bit better than now and this way. And let's see if we can help each other figure it out. That's what I would say. That's, that's good input. And I think we have found our way through that in a good manner through the pandemic and all the challenges we've had. And, you know, the people I truly treasure in my organization are those that are loyal but disagreeable. So they will challenge me. I know they, they love me, they love Suma, and, uh, but they will disagree when they disagree. And, uh, exactly, exactly. I love that, loving but disagreeable, right? 
you know, I do a lot of leadership development. I work a lot in practice. And people sometimes say, what are we going to get out of this experience? And I say, well, two things. One is, you, know, you don't need to be perfect. You need to be awake. In fact, the moment we stop trying to be imperfect is the moment we begin being awake. And the second one is if we're very, not very lucky, but very good, we learn to be difficult well. Because it's very easy to be difficult badly, to be insecure or to be arrogant. But to be difficult well, to be difficult with confidence, to be difficult with care, to say, I love you and you're wrong. And I also think it's safer if we cannot love each other and disagree. Well, then we have only two options. One is conformity and the other one is warfare. Giampiero, I was thinking the word love that you are using, very seldom do you hear that in the general line of business, and we are mentioning it frequently here, which is beautiful. But that's like the biggest power, connecting people and creating that kind of trust and all of that. So is that one part of your message to leaders, to use that word more frequently and mean it? It's a central part of my message to anyone who leads and anyone who works. I mean, I do think of leadership as a kind of love. As we were saying earlier, it's just it's a love for people and purpose in equal measure. And you cannot love all the people. You cannot love every purpose. You gotta pick, hopefully not too narrowly. Your purpose has to be bold and, you know, your group hopefully is uh, proud. But yeah, I do think love is a force that brings us together and make us move. And if you think of, you know, what does leadership exist for? I mean, if you think there's never been a society, a moment in time, whether that society is a family, a village, a tribe, a church, a multinational enterprise, a startup that hasn't developed leadership. And the reason why we develop leadership is because we want someone, some group to hold us together and make us move towards that place in which we'll be better, which we're calling a purpose here, in which we'll address some of the challenges we face, on which we will build some of the structures we don't yet have. And what is that force that moves us if not love? If not, in many ways, love of life itself, you know, and wanting to improve lives. And I think one important thing that happens when leaders are true leaders is that they're also able to see me or imagine me in a more expansive way, which then helps me to go in that direction. Absolutely. So one thing that makes leaders is followers. You know, you're only a leader because at the end of the day, someone else chooses to follow. And I actually think of leaders, you know, almost organically as organisms that turn faith into force. You know, you give me faith and then that faith gives me strength that I use to build something. You know, and of course, people think like, oh, you know, we think in the traditional way, oh, like, you know, political leaders, people follow them, and then they use deploy force in order to expand the country or something like that. But in business, you know, if you think about it as a leader, you have a startup. People have faith in your customers, investors, and they give you funds, and those funds allow you to hire people and uh, develop technology and all of that. And then one of the things we're talking about is what kind of leader are you, and the measure of your leadership is what is it that you're asking people to have faith in and how do you use the strength, the force that that faith generates. And I genuinely believe that most people will choose to follow because your work, your presence makes them feel safe and free. You know, I feel a little safe, but I also feel a little free. And this is like love, right? If you think of love, love doesn't make you, you know, if you love something or someone, it doesn't make you 
just feel comfortable and safe. It also often, you know, you started with passion. It also puts you on edge. It also makes you even sometimes more sensitive to risk. I remember someone I heard told me that love was allowing someone else to hurt you in the belief that they most likely won't. And, you know, and that state is not a state of just comfort. It's a state of comfort at time, but it's also a state of possibility. And I think of leadership is the same way. You know, I feel safe enough that I can trust, but I feel moved enough that I want to do more, be more. And yeah, expansive, you know, like I follow you because I feel you will help me get from confusion to clarity, from fear to comfort, from boredom to excitement, from unity to contradictions. I can bring more of myself. I can be more than even I thought. I don't know about you, but I certainly am in this conversation because at some point there were people in my life that thought of me in a way that even I couldn't imagine myself. And at that point, I had to either choose to believe the version of me that I was familiar with or the version of me that they thought I could reach. And believing them wasn't comfortable, was absolutely scary. It requires taking real risks, financial risks, a real risk. And so I had to feel, okay, they're doing that not because they're trying to mess with me. They're not gambling with me. They're loving me. And I think this is what I love about putting the idea of purpose at the center of investing, that, you know, it forces you to think not just what do we want to bet on, but what do we love? And it has been very uniting for us. And we do have a very caring organization. So people genuinely care for each other and a loving organization, to use that word. But still, the people are high achievement people and quite insecure. So they want to achieve. They don't know if they're good enough. You know, they want that promotion. So the whole idea of sort of radical honesty and bringing the whole self to the firm and having high psychological safety it is difficult to get to sort of a 10 out of 10 on those parameters when there's a large portion uh, of the individuals that uh, are just insecure overachievers. I would be very honest since you're like radical honest, Rainier. I think if you are really putting purpose at the center of your work and purpose, you know, serious purpose, not make-believe small purpose, but like big purpose, change the world type purpose, how are you ever not going to feel insecure? Are you never not going to feel that no matter what you do, it's just a small piece of a large journey? So we also need to accept the price of um, our success, of being able to do. And I do think very often the people who are found their niche and they brought everything to their niche, then they, of course, are the most aware of their limits. And so, you know, I do think an element of insecurity is actually physiologic, not pathologic in those kind of things. And the other thing I think is maybe we shouldn't be looking for 10 out of 10 of these things, you know, because um, if you are 10 out of 10, you know, if we all feel it's completely safe, this place for me, I'm relatively comfortable and I can say what I want and everyone is aligned, and then maybe it's a cult, you know, maybe it's a cult, maybe no one can doubt themselves and no one can doubt others and there's no friction. See, for if you have a reasonable amount of diversity and a reasonable amount of openness, we are always going to bump into situations where, oh, do I say this to you? And 
yes, I want to say to you, but if we are different and we care, I'm always going to feel a little bit of anxiety. And you, hopefully too, and that's okay. And the best we can do then is to figure out how do we contain that anxiety enough so that it feels difficult but not impossible. I think we speak from both sides of our mouth, okay? We say we want people to bring their whole selves to work, but we also want it to feel good. Listen, my whole self is a mess, okay? My whole self is full, and if you want my whole, <laughs> if you invite my whole self, then you're gonna get some really interesting, kind of quirky, perhaps stuff, and I'm just really gonna dedicate all sorts of energy. And then, just like many, many people who are smart and dedicated, and I want to do more than you know what I really can achieve, and then I'm gonna complain, and I'm gonna blame you, and then I'm gonna feel bad for blaming you, and. And anyone whose whole self isn't a mess, I am not going to trust, honestly. They are in absolute denial. They're in absolute <laughs> denial. So, you know, maybe the fact that, you know, you have a little friction and a little challenge in a purpose-driven enterprise is actually a sign that you're succeeding. That's great to hear. Uh, that, <laughs> that makes my day. And I can assure you, we're not... We are not a cult yet, so I can assure you. <laughs> exactly. <of that. laughs> Rainer, look, if I, if I think it's also, I mean, you know, I am all for candor. I'm all for bringing our humanity to work and all of that. But I also think work cannot become prison. Like, an, you know, the, the weird thing about, I think, the whole self is that you also need to have the freedom to say, this part of myself I want to keep for my sport team, for my family, for my children. And there will be this moment, you know, when we are working on, something that I really know well, I feel like, hey, you know, I'm good, you know, I can disagree. And this other thing, I don't really know it well. I want to contribute, but I feel a little wobbly. And so I think in certain contexts, we got to be careful not to pathologize insecurity. Otherwise, we cultivate overconfidence. And so, you know, again, I think eight out of 10 in certain contexts, especially when we're talking purpose especially when you're talking smart people. You know, I also think, who are the people most likely to be insecure, okay? It's really experts. It's really people who know what they're doing because usually the experts know the limits of their competence and their ability very well. The idiots always feel they know everything. So, you know, if you're hiring people that are purpose-driven, you know, with a decent amount of expertise and awareness, every now and then they'll worry. They'll worry, can this be done? They'll worry, can I do it? And I don't think you can ask yourself or you can ask your organization to remove that anxiety. What you can ask yourself and what you can ask the organization is to contain that anxiety so that it doesn't generate despair or it doesn't generate conflict. You know? And for me, that's the, the point of honesty is not to make sure we feel good. The point of honesty is to make sure that the moments in which we don't feel good we don't get paralyzed or silenced or aggressive. One thing I'm fond of saying is it's relatively easy to be insecure and to be an asshole. Okay? It's so easy that actually I, I can do both at the same time you know, on many days. What's hard is to ask yourself questions and to question is to be generous when you know and to be curious when you don't. That's really hard because when we know, when we feel we we know better than others, and I'm sure you work with people that sometimes do have more skills and more capacity than others. It's very easy to become judgmental and say, why are these people not getting their act together? And 
it's very easy when we're insecure to be silent, try to make sure no one in the room realizes that I have no clue. And for me, good leadership is when you can be generous when you know and curious when you don't. And that doesn't require putting the bar so high that I never feel anxiety, but it requires putting it in a place where I feel anxiety and that ain't going to detach me from me and going to detach me from you. Then I'm going to detach us from our purpose, from what we're trying to do. Okay, it's time to wrap up. So I'll um, just ask you a final question, Giampiero. What does the world need most right now? Care, really care. Care for it. Care for the world, as in the planet and the people on the planet, um, beyond a short-term horizon. You know, it's just care to touch each other in ways that lead, build things that are um, better than the ones we found. And any quick advice to young people who um, are making choices to design their life work? Yes, don't let anyone ever call you a future leader. I hate when people go, you know, when, when those like me are middle-aged, go on some commencement speech uh, or in some kind of, you know, entry, you know, new recruits day and say, you are the future leaders of this firm, of, of this planet, which usually means Okay, for now, just fall in line and do as I tell you. And then maybe one day, you know, you'll get the keys to the car. There's no such thing as a future leader. Leadership is always articulated in the present tense. There's leaders for the future. And so if you have an idea, if you have a purpose, if you have a group of people you care about, start leading now. Leadership is not something that you can put in the refrigerator and then take it out in 15 years or something like that. You know, don't be a future leader, lead from the start, lead from the start. And I think of leadership as an attitude, right? You know, I'm going to choose to take responsibility for an outcome for a group of people. Because when you have that attitude, then probably you're going to get to the point where you actually have more traditional formal leadership. And if you don't cultivate that attitude when you're young, you're not going to find it when you're older, under, you know, you have less energy, less enthusiasm, and more pressure. If you don't have the courage to lead when you shouldn't, you're not going to find it later on. Lead now. Someone calls you a future leader, they're just trying to get you to wait. And certainly in my book, leaders don't wait. Leaders make choices and uh, then sometimes live with the consequences of those choices. But yeah, don't wait. Don't wait to lead. That's what I'd say. What is the main takeaway you want it to be for the people listening to this episode? If you love, as things said, if you love somebody, set them free, <laughs> which is, you know, if you really love, if you have a purpose, you know, find a place where you can bring that purpose into the world, hopefully not on your own, because otherwise it's not going to scale. And then stick to that place and stick to those people that help you do it. And I would add that if it's all love and hallelujah, then it's uh, a cult. And if you want to be high-performing, then you need at least some friction and debate. Yeah, some friction and debate. We can't always be real and feel good. Thank you so much, Gianfiero. Thank you, Rainier, for a great and very valuable conversation. Thank you. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, 
we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.